So if you're new at this, we've been going essentially verse by verse through the book of Exodus. And today we come to a story in the book of Exodus that is at the very center of two major world religions, Judaism and Christianity. This is the central story of both religions. And shockingly, what's at the core of these two religions is the death of an innocent lamb. The death of an innocent lamb is at the core of both religions. And so, let's read this curious tale together, shall we? Today we come to Exodus chapter 11. If you have your Bible, we'll start with verse 1. If you don't have your Bible, it's not a big deal. The verses will be on the screen behind me. But we're going to actually go all the way through chapter 12, verse 30. And so, this is a lot of reading. (laughs) I'm sorry about that. But this is the central story. So I just felt like I couldn't skip over it or summarize it. I wanted to read it to you. It's the central story. I feel like we need to read it. And uh, so therefore, I'll try to read it well, okay? (laughs) So this is a lot of reading. I'll try to read it well for you. Uh, But this is the core of our religion right here. So it starts in Exodus chapter 11. We'll start with verse 1. Verse 1. Now the Lord had said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, he will let you go from here. And when he does, he will drive you out completely. Tell the people that men and women alike are to ask their neighbors for article of silver and gold. The Lord made the Egyptians favorably disposed toward the people. And Moses himself was highly regarded in Egypt by Pharaoh's officials and by the people. So Moses said, this is what the Lord says. About midnight, I will go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die. From the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn son of the female slave who is at her handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle as well. There will be loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there has ever been or ever will be again. But among the Israelites, not a dog will bark at any person or animal. Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. All these officials of yours will come to me, bowing down before me and saying, Go, you and all the people who follow you. After that, I will leave. Then Moses, hot with anger, left Pharaoh. The Lord had said to Moses, Pharaoh will refuse to listen to you, so that my wonders may be multiplied in Egypt. Moses and Aaron performed all these wonders before Pharaoh, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let the Israelites go out of his country. Chapter 12. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, This month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there. You you are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. 
Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. The same night they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or boiled in water, but roast it over a fire with the head, legs, and internal organs. Do not leave any of it till morning. If some is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it, with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals. And I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be assigned for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. This is a day you are to commemorate. For the generations to come, you shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. For seven days you are to eat bread made without yeast. On the first day, remove the yeast from your houses. For whoever eats anything with yeast in it, from the first day through the seventh, must be cut off from Israel. On the first day, hold a sacred assembly, and another one on the seventh day. Do no work at all on these days, except you prepare food for everyone to eat. That is all you may do. Celebrate the festival of unleavened bread, because it was on this very day that I brought your divisions out of Egypt. Celebrate this day as a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. In the first month, you are to eat bread made without yeast, from the evening of the 14th day until the evening of the 21st day. For seven days, no yeast is to be found in your houses, and anyone, whether foreigner or native-born, who eats anything with yeast in it must be cut off from the community of Israel. Eat nothing made with yeast. Wherever you live, you must eat unleavened bread. Then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go at once and select the animals for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it into the blood in the basin, and put some of the blood on the top and on both sides of the doorframe. None of you shall go out of the door of your house until morning. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top and sides of the doorframe and will pass over that doorway. And he will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. When you enter the land that the Lord will give you as he promised, observe this ceremony. And when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? Then tell them, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. Then the people bowed down and worshipped. The Israelites did just what the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on the throne, to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon, and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night, and there was loud wailing in Egypt, for there was not a house without someone dead. This is God's word. Okay. So 
The central element of the biblical narrative is the story of a slain lamb. But the question is, why? <laughs> why? Why is this story so important? Why is it so central? Why is it so critical? Well, we need to look at the entire context of the Bible for the answer to that question. You see, the Bible is not one book. It's a collection of 66 books. But all 66 are telling one story. The story of the Lamb. That's the story they're telling. And so if we want to understand this story in Exodus, we need to understand the overarching story of the Bible. And so here's what we see in the chapters we just read. First of all, God has called Pharaoh, the most powerful man on the earth, the king of Egypt, to release the Hebrews from their grinding slavery that they've been in for the past 400 years. Okay? God has called them, called Pharaoh to set them free, and Pharaoh over and over and over again refuses. He refuses to do so. And so, a series of plagues have come upon the nation of Egypt, which we looked at last week. And today, Yahweh brings the final stroke. And what is that? Chapter 12, verse 12. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals. And I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The final stroke on Pharaoh is the destroyer. The destroyer is coming. He's coming to kill all the firstborn sons of Egypt. But that's not all. He's coming for the firstborn sons of Israel too. You see. God is saying to Israel here, I am about to unleash the most unstoppable force in the history of the world. The destroyer. And he's going to cut through the most powerful military force in history like a hot knife through butter. Oh, and he's coming for you too. Even your animals. He's coming. And there is one and only one way you can protect yourself from the destroyer. A lamb. A lamb. Now, how can this be? <laughs> how can this be? You're telling me I am protected from the most unstoppable force in the universe by fluffy and muffy? Little dirty little fluffy animals? Like what? What? You tell me fluffy and muffy are going to save me from the destroyer. And God says, yes, they are. The lamb will save you. Now, many modern folks find this story either confounding or disturbing. <laughs> and I get that, but you know, I think things will get a little clearer once you put this story again in the context of the whole story, the whole Bible. So let's go back for a minute, all right? The story of the Lamb really begins in Genesis 3 with the fall of man. But it doesn't become explicit until Genesis 22. 
Genesis 22. When God tells Abraham to sacrifice his only son, Isaac. Now, when God tells Abraham this, of course, Abraham feels deep anguish. But modern people don't understand why. They don't understand why. They think Abraham feels anguish because God is such a tyrant for asking such a thing of him. But that's not true. That's not true. It's not why Abraham was in anguish. You see, in the ancient Near East, you didn't have aspirations for individual success or prosperity. You had aspirations for the success of your family. That's what you dreamt about as a little kid. Okay? You dreamt about your family success, not your personal success. You see, the ancient Near East was not individualistic like America is. We are, right now, as we sit here, the most radically individualistic culture in history. Like, there's no close second, okay? (laughs) Uh, There are only three things that matter to Americans. There are only three voices that we really want to hear. And those are the voices of me, myself, and I. The Holy Trinity of America. (laughs) Me, myself, and I, okay? Uh, all that's all I'm really concerned with, but you know, the ancient Near East was not at all like that. Not at all. All of your dreams and hopes and aspirations were in your family. It was all about the family. Okay. And so when one member of the family uh, did something shameful, for example, well, the whole family felt it. The whole family felt deep shame and regret. Okay. Now. In this ancient culture, the firstborn son took the most prominent place in the family. He took the highest place in the family. It was the firstborn son that took the most high place. And in the law of Moses, in the Old Testament, God says something that ancient people understand, but modern people think is bizarre. We don't get it at all, but they got it real quick because of the culture. Okay, here's what God says in the law of Moses. He says this. He says, the life of every firstborn is mine. Unless you redeem. Unless you redeem. So what happened was, is there was a redemption price put on the firstborn son of every family in Israel that all of them had to pay. All of them had to pay. Now, this was an unmistakable message to ancient people. (laughs) They got it right away. And so did Abraham. You see, all the hopes, all your hopes, and all the hopes of the family rested with the firstborn. All your hopes rested with him. And so what God is saying with the command is this. He is saying every single one of you have continuously sinned and rebelled against me. All of you. Therefore, all of you owe me a debt. A tremendous debt. And I'm placing this debt on the head of your firstborn. And so, when God said to Abraham, give me 
your firstborn. Abraham was devastated, of course, but he understood. He understood what God was doing. God was calling in the debt. He's calling in the debt. Abraham knew full well that he and his family were sinners and that God is just in punishing sin. Why do you think Abraham just started loading up the wood for the altar? Started packing his stuff as soon as the command came. This is Abraham knows. <laughs> he knows that he's a sinner and he knows that God is just in calling in the dead. He knows God is just in punishing their sin. But Abraham also knew something else. He knew something else about God. He knew that God was astoundingly gracious. Astound, overwhelmingly gracious. He knew that. He knew that. And that's why, on their way up the mountain, when Isaac asked Abraham why there was no sacrifice with them, you know, he said, he said Father, I see the, see the wood, you know, I, I see the stones, I see everything that we need for the sacrifice, but, but where's the sacrifice? Isaac was confused. And because God, because God is so gracious and so merciful, and Abraham knew this, this is what Abraham told his son Isaac. He said, son, God will provide a sacrifice for us. He will provide a lamb. He'll provide a lamb. Now, again, I realize that modern skeptics find the Abraham story primitive and absurd. <laughs> I get it. Uh, and the reason they cannot come to grips with God demanding the life of Isaac is that they think Isaac and pretty much everybody we're all just pretty good folks you know and so this is terrible <laughs> that god would do this to abraham and isaac they're you know they're pretty good guys you know they might fall off the wagon here or there but they're pretty good dudes right we're all pretty good dudes we are and so this seems absurd that god would demand this of abraham and isaac you see what's going on here is that modern people have invented their own moral standard. They've got their own Ten Commandments. Okay? Um, and we can boil down their, this new modern uh, set of rules really by this. So here is the new moral standard. It's essentially this. I'll summarize it for you. You ready? Whatever feels right to me is right. And that's it. That's the new moral standard. <laughs> Whatever feels right to me is right. And then we can develop it further from there. You know, we can write out some more commandments and whatever for each other. But in, in general, it's just whatever feels right to me is right. Whatever is right for you is right for you. But whatever is right to me is right to me. That's the new moral standard. Okay? Uh, and I think we all kind of, uh, we all kind of feel this intuitively. Uh, and not only that, but we also feel this every time we scroll on social media or watch the news. We get it. <laughs> we get it. Whatever feels right to me is right. Uh, and you know what? If that's you this morning, if, if you're kind of here and you, and you subscribe to that, it's like, hey, whatever's good for me is good for me. I'll tell you what. Here's what we'll do. For the sake of, the, for the sake of argument, I'll disagree with you. Okay? I'll just say, fine. Fine. If that's how you want to do it, 
fine. You call the shots, okay? You call the moral shots, you make the moral rules, fine. No problem, I'll let you have it. But, but, let's pretend for just a second that around your neck is an invisible tape recorder. An invisible tape recorder. And the only thing that tape recorder picks up is whatever you say other people ought to do. Okay? So as soon as that tape recorder hears the word ought come out of your mouth, it clicks on and it records. And then when you're done, it shuts off. And we'll, hey, let's include Twitter here too. So anything, that tape recorder is amazing, all right? It picks up anything you put on Twitter that other people ought to do or Facebook or whatever the kids are using nowadays, all right? It picks up everything that you say others ought to do, all right? Let's pretend that there's this tape recorder and let's pretend that at the end of your life, you have to hit play. And what will happen is, is you and me, we'll get together and we'll hit play and we'll listen. We'll listen to all the things you said others ought to do. And then what we'll do is we'll judge your life by those standards. We'll judge your life by those standards. If that story were really to come to pass, do you know that not a single person, not a single person on the earth would pass even their own moral test. <laughs> they wouldn't even pass their own moral test. We don't need the Ten Commandments, folks. We can use your commandments and you still won't live by them. You won't. You won't. And that's why when I invite people to church, you know, I invite people to church all the time. Uh, and they say, oh, pastor, I can't come to your church. There's too many hypocrites there. I always say, oh, no, oh, no. There aren't too many. We always have room for one more. We'll make room for one more hypocrite. You see, we're all hypocrites, folks. I'll raise my hand the highest. <laughs> not only do we not live by God's standards, we don't li even live by ours. <laughs> we don't even live by our own standards. It's pretty funny. It would be funnier if it wasn't so sad. And you know, if there is a God, if it turns out that there is a God, then uh, we're in big trouble. <laughs> we're in big trouble uh, because His standards are infinitely more difficult to live by than ours. Infinitely more difficult. Therefore, we are all in overwhelming moral debt to our Creator. All of us. And Abraham knows this. He knows this. He's traumatized by it, sure. But he gets it. He knows that God has the right, anytime he wants, to call in the debt. He knows it. And so what does he do? He climbs the mountain with his boy. He builds an altar. He puts his only son on the wood. And he raises the knife to strike the death blow. And just as he's about to strike, what happens? A voice says to him, Abraham, stop. Put the knife down. And Abraham puts it down. 
and the life of Isaac is spared. And so the end of this story is a, whew, it's a sigh of relief for us. It's like, okay, sigh of relief, Isaac is spared. But the story leaves us with a few unanswered questions, though. One question is this. Where's the lamb? Abraham told us that a lamb was coming. But the story ends and, and there is no lamb. So what happened? Where's the lamb? Fast forward to Exodus chapter 12. God once again calls in the debt of the firstborn. He's sending the destroyer to Egypt. And the shocking thing about this passage is that the destroyer is no respecter of persons. Because of the debt every human owes, the destroyer is coming for the firstborn of Egypt and the firstborn of Israel. And you say, now, now wait a minute, preacher. Wait a minute. This doesn't make any sense. Israel's innocent. They're the ones who have been oppressed and in slavery to Egypt for centuries. They're innocent in this story, right? And God says, no. No, they're not. They too have sinned against their creator. They too have spit in his face. And disobeyed him all their lives. All their lives. And so, in the final spiritual analysis, Israel is no better than Egypt. So when the destroyer comes, everybody's in trouble. Everybody's in trouble. No one can face him down on their own. No one. And that includes you, and it includes me. You can't show the destroyer all your good works. You can't show the destroyer your church attendance. You can't, you can't yeah, but the destroyer. You can't say, yeah, but I played on the worship band. Yeah, but I wrote a check and put it in every week. Yeah, but I'm a really good person. I'm a really nice person. I treat people nice. The destroyer doesn't care. You have nothing to offer him. You owe a debt that you cannot pay. And the destroyer is coming for it. And it will be paid. It will be. But God does something interesting here in Exodus. He provides... One and only one way out. He provides Israel a substitute. Oh, the debt has to be paid. But God says here that a substitute can pay it. A substitute can pay it. And so, every house in Egypt that night, there would be either a dead son or a dead lamb. In every home, one 
or the other. You see. In other words, the lamb got what the son deserved. The lamb paid the debt so that the firstborn would not have to pay it. So I imagine this. I mean, think about this together. Think about that Passover night when they're all gathered around the table eating the Passover meal together. What do you think every firstborn son in the room is thinking when he looks at the table? What's he thinking? I imagine they're all thinking the same thing. The firstborn son looks at the table and he says to himself, the only reason I'm not dead is because that lamb is Now, why doesn't Exodus end right here? Why doesn't it end right here? The destroyer comes. Israel is saved. Pharaoh's had enough and lets the people go. What? Shouldn't that kind of be it? <laughs> like, why does it end right here? Actually, there's a lot of chapters after this in Exodus. There's a lot of chapters after this in the Old Testament. Like, why doesn't the Bible end right here? Because it kind of seems like up to this point, if you start from Genesis 1 and you get here, it kind of seems like there should be a nice little bow on this story right here. Like the end, and they all lived happily ever after, right? That's what it seems like. So why isn't this the end? Why are there so many more chapters in the Bible? Well, it's because as incredible as the Passover deliverance is, and it is remarkable. It for sure is. It's incredible. But as incredible as it is, it's not enough. It's not enough. That little slain lamb for the Passover was not enough to pay the full debt of Israel's sin. Or your sin. Or mine. It wasn't enough. You see, that little lamb was only good for one night just for one night the debt still remained as important as this substitute is you need another one a greater one in order for your full sin debt to be paid and I'm here this morning with really good news and the good news is this. Many, many years after the Egyptian Passover, a greater lamb would come. A greater lamb would come. You see, Jesus Christ, on the night he was betrayed, he told his disciples to join him for the Passover meal. Isn't that interesting? This very meal we just read about. And when Jesus stands up to lead his disciples in this Passover meal, he gives them and us two enormous shocks. Enormous shocks. Shock number one. Every Passover meal has a presider over it, you see. Someone presides over the meal and leads everyone in it 
step by step, okay? Someone who explains each part of the meal and helps everyone remember what the meal is all about, okay? So, of course, Jesus presides over this one. He's the presider over the meal. The instructions for the presider are actually here in Exodus 12. We just read them. So, Jesus stands up as the presider over the Passover, and he has the Passover bread, okay? And so he breaks the bread per usual, and here's what we expect him to say. We expect him to say what all the other presiders say. We expect Jesus to say, this is the bread of our affliction. Our affliction that our ancestors suffered so that we could be free. That's what every presider says. But that's not what Jesus says on this night. Instead, Jesus stands up, and he does not say, this is the bread of our affliction. No, he says, this is the bread of my affliction, my suffering, my sacrifice. You see, I will suffer on this night so that all men can be free. Jesus is saying, I am the Lamb. I am your final and ultimate substitute once for all. That's shock number one. Shock number two, when Jesus stood up, the disciples looked down at the table and they saw the Passover bread and they saw the Passover wine. But the text does not include any mention of a Passover lamb on the table. There's no lamb. It's just the bread and the wine. There's no lamb at, at this, uh, on this Passover table. Now, why is that? There's no lamb on this table because on this night, the lamb is at the table. Tonight, the lamb is not a part of the meal. The lamb is presiding over the meal. Jesus is saying it pretty clearly. He's saying, I am the Lamb, capital L. The sacrifice to end all sacrifices. My death is the central event to which all of history has been moving. And tonight, I'm paying the debt that everyone owes. I'm paying it. And this is why John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus coming, he cried out and said what? He said, behold, the Lamb of God come to take away the sins of the whole world. And this, my friends, this is the answer to Abraham. This is the answer to Abraham. You see, a lamb was not given to Abraham that day because it wasn't time for the lamb yet. But God was saying this. He was saying, Abraham, like you, one day I will climb this very mountain with my son. And just like you, I will lay him down on the wood. But this time, no one will say stop. 
I'll go all the way. You see, Abraham, the reason your only beloved son won't have to die on this hill is because mine will. My son will die in Isaac's place. And in your place, Abraham, and in everyone's place. And so, my friends, the great news for you this morning is that because of the Lamb, all your sins are forgiven. <laughs> all of them. Your past sins, your present sins, tomorrow's sins, they're done. <laughs> they're done. They're over. They're dead. <laughs> they're dead. Because the Lamb has made it so. The Lamb has paid the debt. And when Jesus breathed his last, and he cried out those famous last words, it is finished. Do you know how you can translate that? You can easily translate that as Jesus saying, the debt is paid in full. Debt has been paid. <laughs> One commentator, he puts it this way. The scholar writes this. He says, quote, When the ultimate beloved child cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The father paid the debt with his silence. <laughs> you see, folks, the reason your prayers are answered by the Father is because when Jesus cried out to his Father in his most desperate time of need, the Father was silent. He did not answer him because Jesus is the Lamb. He is our substitute. He took what we should have taken, which is the full wrath of God for our sin. And so, Abraham's chapter of the Lamb, chapter number one, says there's a debt that all of us owe. Chapter number two, Moses' chapter of the Lamb says, but the debt can be paid by a substitute. Chapter number three, Jesus' chapter of the Lamb says, Jesus is the substitute, the ultimate lamb. But there's a fourth chapter coming that has yet to be written, but is, oh, it's in the process. <laughs> the fourth chapter of the lamb to come is the marriage supper of the lamb. And at that supper, you see, that's where you and me and every other sinner who has been saved and redeemed by His blood, we will gather together and we will eat and we will sing and we will laugh and we will celebrate the wondrous love and forgiveness of our crucified and risen Lamb. <laughs> I can't wait for that day. You see, because we will join the billions and billions of angels 
in paradise and we will cry out to the top of our lungs, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Worthy is the Lamb. 